Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of What's Up With History. In this episode, we're going to be talking about the famous explorer Marco Polo. Now, if you don't know who Marco Polo is, then you are about to find out. He is more than just trying to find your friend in the pool. Now, before I get started, I want to talk about my source, which is the book Marco Polo from Venice to Xanadu, written by Lawrence Bergreen, who's a fantastic author. I highly recommend you guys check out not just this book, but all of his other books, because he's written a few, and they're all excellent reads. I'm actually in the middle of one of them right now. But without further ado, we'll get right into the topic. Alright, so Marco Polo was captured by the Genoese in the Battle of Corzola in around 1298. This was after his initial adventure. And he was imprisoned in a place known as the Palazzo di San Giorgio. Now that was a prison built in about 1260, constructed out of stolen stones from the Venetian consulate in Constantinople, as kind of a screw you to the Venetians at the time. Now while he's there, he meets a guy by the name of Rusticello of Pisa, who is actually the original author of Marco Polo's travels. Now, a little bit about Rusticello. He's the kind of guy who looks for really romantic, exotic kind of stories. And so, obviously, a story about Kublai Khan, the half-man, half-legend ruler of the Mongol Empire, would be very appealing to Rusticello. Now, before I get into more about Marco Polo himself, I'm going to describe where he was born. Because, as everybody knows, the place where you're from really kind of defines who you are as a person. Marco Polo was born in Venice which was known as a very seductive and extremely progressive city-state at the time. And not progressive in the sense that it was very forward-thinking and social issues. It was progressive economically. Now, if you don't know, a city-state is a city and its surrounding territories that form a state together. That's about it. Now, it was pretty much the center of commerce in the 13th century of Europe, and there was a massive merchant market and population, which led to the most advanced banking system in Western Europe. And the most intriguing part about the people of Venice is that they saw the world as a flat world, economically speaking. They were very globalized. They believed that if you traded with anybody or had any kind of currency, you could get anywhere, which is extremely progressive during this time, because that's something that's talked about in recent years with the economy. Now, a little bit about the city itself and the people. It was run by an oligarchy of about 150 aristocratic families, and it was run by a single ruler known as a doge. Now the Doge was pretty much just a military commander because the city of Venice was constantly in battle with other places. And their patron saint was Saint Mark. There's a funny story about Saint Mark. There was a group of individuals from Venice who went to Rome to see the body. And while they were there, they stole the body of Saint Mark and brought him back to Venice in order to bury him there and then created this whole myth about how he was originally supposed to be buried there in the first place. And I don't know about you guys, but that sounds kind of cultish to me. But anyways, they also took part in the Third Crusade with the sacking of Zara in Constantinople. The French knights were forgiven for this, but Venice, eh, the Catholic Church never really forgave him for it. Now there was a ritual in Venice at the time where the doge would go down the main canal of Venice and he would toss a ring, just a small wedding ring, into the ocean. And this was an annual ritual that they would do in order to symbolize their renewal of marriage with the ocean. Because the ocean was very important to them. It was their lifeblood. It was the means for their livelihood of trading throughout the seas. And now, even though Marco Polo was born in Venice, there's contention over whether or not his family was originally from there. They may have been from the Dalmatian city-state of Sebenico, or the island of Corzola, where he was captured later. Or maybe they have been there all along. There's no evidence to support either claim. 
However, there is activity in around 971 of a man by the name of Domenico Polo, where it shows frequent trips to Dalmatia by this man. So maybe that shows just business dealings with the city-state. Maybe it shows that they were from there. I'll leave it up for y'all to decide. Now, Marco Polo wasn't the first Polo to go on a trip to the east. It was actually his father and uncle, Maffeo and Niccolo. They left Venice in around 1253. Marco was born the following year in 1254, and they were passengers in a Venetian muda, which, an interesting thing about the Venetian muda, it was pretty much a flotilla of ships because they needed to protect themselves from attacking pirates. And now the interesting thing about the muda, not that it was a flotilla, but the fact that the passengers who were on board these flotillas were required to defend their ship if they were attacked by pirates. Now that sounds pretty cool to me. Now, the Mongols were sometimes called Tartars, which was just a tribe near Russia, so the name kind of stuck throughout the Silk Road, which kind of borders the lower section of Russia. It goes over kind of northern Iraq and the Mongol Empire at the time. And Genghis Khan's conquest gave rise to an empire, the Mongol Empire, for his grandson, Kublai Khan. And now under Kublai Khan, they reopened the Silk Road under what was known as Pax Mongolica. Now the Silk Road is the means by which Maffeo and Niccolo traveled to the east. Now they traveled the northern road through the deserts of Iraq and then reached Bukhara, now known as Uzbekistan, for, and they stayed there for about three years where they met an ambassador for Hulagu. Now Hulagu is the brother of Kublai Khan, so if you're going to meet somebody who can get you to the court of Kublai Khan, this is the person. Now, with his help, they reached Kambulak, which is where the court of Kublai Khan was located, in about a year. Now, they weren't the first Christians there, but they were probably the most famous. Now, Kublai Khan wanted them, Niccolo Maffeo, to be ambassadors to the West. He wanted to add Jesus and Christianity into his Mongolian pantheon. Now, he wasn't the kind of person to stick to just one religion. He wanted all of them under his reign, because he believed that having multiple religions under the fold in his empire was a means of having better political stability and keeping people satiated within his empire. No, that's a weird word to choose, but it fits. Now, they returned to Acre with the aid of the Golden Paitza, or Gerga, in 1269, and now the, the Golden Paitza, it was a, a little golden tablet that had the seal of the emperor on it and some, some writing, and it was pretty much a golden passport throughout the entire empire. If you had that Golden Paitza, you could get anywhere and nobody could stop you because you're on royal business and if they do hinder you in any way that's treason and they could be killed for that so pretty serious stuff and when they get back to acre it turns out the pope has died so there's no pope they can't have anyone to sign off to certify that they got the monks that they need to teach christianity in the mongol empire or the holy oil from the sepulcher in jerusalem so they decide they're going to return to Venice in the meantime to wait for the uh, new pope to be elected. While they're there, Niccolo, Marco's father, realizes that he's had a son who is about 15 years old at this time. Now he stays in Venice and he gets remarried and they stay there for about two years just doing odds and ends of business, trading the stuff that they had. And he impresses Marco with his stories of his travels and Marco is enraptured by these stories. He desperately wants to go on to a return trip. And so, Marco leaves Venice in 1271 with his father and uncle and another Muda to have his coming of age on the road. And that will become very apparent later on. 
Now they reach Acre, finally, and they recon they reconnoiter with the papal legate that they met earlier, Teobaldo of Piacenza, and he tells them that there's still no pope at the time. So in the absence of the pope, they have Teobaldo sign off on their certification. They have two monks that go back with him, and they have the oil from the Holy Sepulchre. So mission accomplished, more or less. They head back, and on the way, they reach Laius, and Teobaldo is elected pope. So, <laughs> mission was accomplished. They did get the certification from the pope. He becomes Gregory X on March 27, 1272. That's pretty lucky to me. Now, they also get held up by the potentate in Armenia, which they get through, but because of that, the monks that were with them, the two monks, they get scared and head back to the west. So, sadly, that's one object of their mission that they weren't able to fulfill, but that doesn't stop them. Now they are on the same path as Alexander the Great, who inspired Marco Polo, and this makes Marco giddy with excitement about the journey even more so. He can't stop talking about Alexander the Great in this segment of his book. He encounters Islam in Turkoman, now known as Turkey, and doesn't really take to it like most other cultures and customs at first, but later on you'll see him warm up to these things a bit more. Like I said, he's on his coming of age on the road. So he's going to get a lot of fresh experiences and a lot of different experiences as he grows up. He also searches for Noah's Ark in Turkey, unsuccessfully, but interestingly. And they reach Mosul on the Tigris, where Marco encounters bazaars and Nestorian Christians. They pass through Tabriz, which is the inspirational court for Arabian Nights. And they reach Baghdad and sail into Hormuz. Now, they intended to sail from Hormuz, but decided against it due to the poor condition of ships. They weren't exactly built very sound, not as sound as Venetian ships. So they were kind of, they had their, you know, their nose raised a little bit at this time. And they were thinking, you know, this isn't really good enough for us. We don't really trust these. They're not made the way that we want them to be made. Nevertheless, they head to the road to Kashgar instead, and they run into Karanas on the way that attack their convoy. And Karanas are just highwaymen, marauders. And so that was an interesting segment to add into his story. And it definitely scared Marco a little bit, as it would anybody. So they, they crossed the Afghanistan border, northern border, to the oasis of Sapurgan. Marco encounters the Shrine of the Mythical Dry Tree in Tunacane, now known as Kuistan. The Polos caravaned wearily through the former assassin territory, which there were a lot of myths at the time, but... The assassins were actually disbanded by Hulugu in 1256, a few years earlier. So there wasn't really any threat, more or less. But people still weren't too sure about that. They thought maybe there was probably something going on still there. So they were a little hesitant, but nevertheless they made it through safe. They reached the famous war-torn city of Balkh, the cursed city, where Marco sees his first example of the destructive side of the Mongol Empire. And he gets a little, he gets a little hesitant at first. But, more or less, he kind of gets over himself, and he continues on his journey. He's, he's a little too excited for that to hold him back. So, they eventually reach Taikan, now known as Talikan, where they heavily experience salt trade. Salt was a huge commodity in the ancient world. It was the number one currency. It's like Bitcoin nowadays, except a bit more stable in terms of its value. And they finally reach the Tarak Pass, which is the original border between the west and the east and the oasis of Badakhshan, where Marco possibly contracted tuberculosis, used medicinal opium, and had to detox from that opium for about a year in the mountains. But they eventually ascend Tarak Pass after that, 
the traditional border, like I said, and eventually reached Khotan, where Marco was exposed to Buddhism for the first time. And again, he doesn't really take to it at first, but nevertheless, he finds it interesting. And then they finally reach Lop and the Singing Sands. Now, the Singing Sands is an interesting story about what's well, not really much to it, other than the fact that a lot of sounds would echo over the sands and create this sort of noises and voices throughout the sand. And they thought it were spirits in the desert that were luring people away from their caravans and they would never be seen again in the desert. But it was purely scientific behind the sounds, but it's still... It's always fun to hear these little stories and tidbits from around the world about different myths that they have about spirits and demons that lived in the desert that could attack at any moment. But nevertheless, <clears throat> they continue on to Tengut, and he reaches Kamul, and then finally Kashgar. And then they stay in a place known as uh, Camp Sio for about a year in 1274 for nondescript business, mainly trading. And then they reach Karakoram, where the court used to be. Now, Karakoram is on the Mongolian steppe, where the Mongol Empire used to be focused. That was the original court of the Mongol Empire until about 1220 AD, when Kublai Khan moved it to Kambulak to, in order to kind of encroach his people onto the Chinese, because that was the biggest empire that he wanted to maintain control of. And as they continue on the road, they finally reach Kambulak, which nowadays we know as Beijing. And Marco is pre prevented, not prevented, presented by his father as a servant for Kublai Khan. I know, sounds like a great dad, right? But if he hadn't have done that, then we wouldn't have the stories of Marco Polo from the 17 years of partnership between Marco and Kublai Khan. And so Marco is used by Kublai Khan for important royal business due to his knowledge with languages. And he heads to Kuregian first, which is now known as the Yunnan Peninsula. Marco frequented rather regular posts along the roads to and from Kambulak, built for messengers, and these are extremely nice places, like Hilton's, every few miles or so. Even princes are comfortable staying in these places, and they're just built for the messengers. I mean, that's how much money the Mongol Empire has. But they continue along the Grand Canal on a journey to Qinsai, which is considered the most advanced city in China at the time. He encounters silk everywhere obviously, with being in the Mongol Empire. And a side note about silk is that it's, it's credited to the Yellow Emperor's wife, Xiling Shi, who apparently was the first person to come up with a formula to derive silk from silkworms around 3000 BC. Now, it's just a myth, but it's the best we got. Marco then experiences another war-torn city of Tibet, and by Tibet, he most likely means that he visited Tibet, Vietnam, Burma, and other places in the Yunnan province around the southern edge. But that's another little hesitating moment for him. <clears throat> Excuse me. To kind of see the darker side of the Mongol Empire. He also experiences more salt as he's traveling around the area. And he next arrives in Unxian, or southern Yunnan, and Myanmar, which he considers a dreadful place for some reason. And then he heard of the burial site of the King of Bagan in Bagan, which is an interesting story that I recommend you guys look up if you want to. It's a story of an interesting architectural tomb that the King of Bagan built for himself and his wife that was apparently extremely beautiful to look at and very ornate. Apparently a tall spire built entirely of gold. I definitely recommend you guys look it up. And he experiences an appreciation for Buddhism for the first time in a place known as Tundinfu, or Yen Chao in Vietnam. 
and this is kind of the first moment we see Marco become more accepting to other religions and cultures in the area. It's a very important moment in his life because he eventually becomes almost a practitioner of Buddhism. Being from the West, that's a surprising change for someone. He then encounters the Song Dynasty in the province of Manzi and its King Fakfor, which was a legendary figure apparently extremely skilled in the art of war, but according to letters between Bayan and the Queen of the city, he was actually kind of a coward. He, as soon as there was a sign of trouble, he got onto a few ships, took some people, took some treasure, and abandoned the city completely and died in shame. But his wife, however, on the other hand, held over the city and maintained control and kept Bayan out for a long time. And it was extremely impressive for a woman at that time. Not to say that women weren't capable, they just never had the opportunity like this lady did. And she proved herself extremely to the point where Bayan even respected her when he finally gained control of the city. And Marco reaches the most advanced city finally, Kinsai, now known as Hangzhou. And while he's there, he's not really able to really experience Kinsai's inner life due to language and cultural barriers. He's not Chinese, he doesn't speak Chinese, therefore he can't really get into the fold and describe a lot of the details of the life of the people in Kinsai. <clears throat> However, he does read the letters between Bayan and the Queen, and that gives him a lot of information about the city, especially on its size, structure, and commerce, which was corroborated by the Persian historian Vasaf and the Franciscan monk Odoric of Perdanun. Now, he leaves the city for some unknown reason, probably something political at the time, but he reunites with his father and uncle after that unexplained departure, and they head for South China. Now, on the way to South China, Marco describes the failed attempts to claim Sapingu, which is known as Japan nowadays. Kublai Khan, in his declining health, thinks that he's losing his grip on the empire, so he tries to spread out his empire outside of China. He tries to claim different islands outside, across the different oceans, and the first place he tries to take is Japan. Now, he doesn't successfully take Japan either one of his two attempts. And the first time was because of the Kamikaze, now known as the Divine Wind, which is a very sacred moment in Japanese history. And Japan was never seized by Kubikon. Now, these stories are corroborated by Chinese annals, and Marco Polo actually gets pretty much every detail right, which is pretty impressive for someone who just hears these things from different people. He obviously knew who to talk to. Nevertheless, the disaster is repeated when Kubikon fails to claim Java, and the repercussions are felt all throughout the empire. Now, he's not the only one who thinks that he's losing his grip. Now his followers think that he's losing his grip. But, back on track with Marco, he kind of brings his thoughts back to himself, and he's heading to India on a more or less spiritual journey at this time. He also encounters the superior Arab naval technology unknown in Europe, and he first describes Indonesia and its kingdoms, Frelek, Basman, Sumatra, Dagroyan, Lambri, and Fansur. Basman he considered the most wild of them all, and he was stranded in Sumatra with dangerous animals and cannibals due to monsoon season. Obviously didn't enjoy his stay there because of the cannibals, but he also witnessed magicians on Degroyan, bread production, and Fansur, stories in Ceylon about an unobtainable gem which reminded Marco Polo of Kublai Khan's declining power. Nevertheless, it was still interesting. He also describes pearl farming in Mabar and the Hindu Siyugi or Yogis. 
he encounters another religious site of Adam's burial on a mountain, which is an interesting story, and a, probably a pretty cool site to view. He also encounters pirates in Melabar, Gosarat, and Tana, and he describes Arabic whale hunting in Socotra and the islands of male and female, which is an interesting story about these two islands where only males lived on one and only females on the other, and they could only meet for, I think, one week in the year to procreate or meet each other or even see each other after the last year. So it's an interesting story about possible customs that may have existed. There's no evidence to support whether or not it was true or not, but if it is, that's pretty interesting. He also witnesses the Hindu Ganges River and heads to Africa to visit Zanzibar, and he mentions Ethiopia while he's there and all the Christian sites within it. But after that, they finally decide that he's seen enough. He's seen as much of the world as he had sought out to see, and he's filled to his heart's content. And they decide that they need to leave. Now, sure, he felt like he needed, he had seen everything that he wanted to see, but the main reason why he wanted to leave is because Kublai Khan was getting older in years, and he was probably going to die pretty soon. And they knew that if he died, they wouldn't be able to leave the empire. Everything would collapse, because he was kind of the last thread hanging on to the empire, keeping everything together. But Kublai Khan sees them as bound to him, in this life and the next. But, fortunately, the king of Argon's wife dies. Well, not fortunately, but fortunately for the Polos. And Kublai Khan provides a wife, Princess Kokachin. Now, the Polos are allowed to escort her on the condition that they return. And, of course, they promise to do this, even though they don't intend to. So they depart in 1292 with a fleet of 14 ships laden with treasure after receiving new paitsas and a farewell ceremony from Kublai that was extremely ornate and ceremonial. Many tears, I'm sure. And their voyage takes about 18 traumatic months over the Indian Ocean. Now, it was traumatic. We know this by the change of Marco's tone. However, these segments are missing from the travels of Marco Polo. But we can assume that it was because of disease, pirates, and shipwrecks. And they finally reach Argon and deliver the princess, who keeps them there for about nine more months because she doesn't want them to leave. So they promise her that they're going to return. They don't intend to keep that promise. And then finally they can reach Kayasatu after leaving the princess. And when they get there, they hear news that Kublai Khan has died on February 18th, 1294 at the age of 80. Now they realize that because of this news, they're never going to be able to return to the Mongol Empire. That was their last possible chance to visit the place. And if you ask me, I think they saw all they could. I think they had a pretty good experience there. It's pretty much our last surviving records of the Empire before its eventual collapse in the next few years. Besides the Chinese annals, of course. Nevertheless, on the way to... Venice, Marco Polo takes a moment to describe Russia based on secondhand accounts, which is interesting. I de definitely recommend you guys look that up in his travels. It's, it's an interesting culture that lived in Russia at this time. And then they're robbed in Trebizond, besides the gems that are sewn into their clothes, which is a neat trick that they learned in Venice. And then they reach Constantinople, and then finally Venice in 1295. They're perceived as strangers when they get home because they're dressed up as Mongolians. Nobody recognizes them because they got their hair cut the same way as Mongolians. They've got the same clothes, hats. And so nobody really knows who they are. 
Now, a fun fact about Marco when he got home, he introduced a lot of things to the Western world. Some of these things were paper money, gunpowder, eyeglasses, and coal. So you have him to thank for all those different things. And he returned to a normal life like his father and uncle, and he settled down with telling stories to people. Everybody came to him to hear stories of his adventures in the Mongolian Empire. Fortunately, he was able to write them down when he was imprisoned, but there's no original copy left. It was written in imperfect French, that much we know, because that's the earliest translations we have, and there's some missing segments, obviously, like I mentioned. But he was released from prison on August 28th, 1299. He'd married to a lady by the name of Donata in 1300. They had three daughters, Fantina, Belilla, and Moretta, who actually revealed some of uh, his private documents later on. Some segments that were missing, they found in some of his journal entries and provided later on. I don't have access to those, but I definitely would love to read them. His father dies sometime before he got married, but he continued trading with his uncle. He grows old to become somewhat of a petty and greedy man. Honestly, he, he became the kind of guy who took his relatives to court because they didn't pay him back on some loan that they took from him. To me, that sounds pretty petty. But he eventually died between January 8th and 9th in the morning on, in the year 1324, and he was buried next to his father, Niccolo. And that is the end of the story of Marco Polo. It was an extremely adventurous life and Lawrence Bergerin made it extremely interesting to read about and easy to follow along. So I highly recommend you guys check out the book to read any more information that I didn't give you guys. I just told you guys the highlights of the story. So definitely check him out. Definitely check out in my next episodes. Please give me a follow. Give me some critical feedback on what I could do better. Because I'm always looking to gain more information about things I could do, things I could do differently. Or not do anymore <laughs> that you guys don't like. But anyways, thank you guys for listening. Thank you so much. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode, and I'll see you next time.